0: Hi, it's Rob Moore here. Uh, welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast, and obviously now a video. I'm here with Joe Fairley, and uh, Joe actually founded, co-founded Green and Blacks back in 91, I believe. Back in 91. And um, could you just kind of take us back to then? Uh, everyone who's watching is an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur, as you know you've been. So um, just tell us how it all started.
1: So I was a journalist. I was a former magazine editor. I was used to writing about other people doing things, not doing them myself. Okay. And one day I walked into my husband's office and I found two squares of dark chocolate on his desk. He was a whole food entrepreneur with a company called Whole Earth Foods. I married him for his peanut butter, actually. <laughs> and, um, and I put the two squares of chocolate in my mouth from this sample bar. And I realized this was the most delicious chocolate I'd ever eaten. And so, therefore, I just said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, well, I can't really do anything. It's got sugar in. And basically, I nagged him and nagged him and nagged him. And eventually, he turned around and said, look, why don't you do it? And so I did.
0: And had you had any sort of business experience before? (laughs) No?
1: (laughs) I'd run a magazine. As an editor, you are a business person, actually. Of course. To be honest, you have a budget. You have targets. You have... Aims and goals and a team of, in that case, 25 people. So actually, I kind of had run a business without really being conscious of it.
0: And had you had like a passion for chocolate before then? Or was just you fell in love at that moment?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, not particularly. I'd I'd written features about it as a journalist. but Sure. you know, I wasn't a chocoholic right. particularly. I I love good chocolate, like okay. most women.
0: Yeah. So the thing that's come into my head is because I I train hundreds thousands of entrepreneurs, and a lot of them they've got this passion. They want to do this thing, like bake cakes or make something. I used to be an artist. But then often when you go into business, it's a very different thing, isn't it? And your passion doesn't always become your profession. But you managed to turn it into a really, well, is it a hundred million pound brand or something? It is.
1: It is. So how did you
0: manage to take something you loved as a passion and turn it into a real business?
1: I think what was really helpful is that I was in business with my husband who had a lot of experience. So actually, I was the creative side. Yeah. I was product development. I was the sort of outward facing. So I was PR and marketing, which I right. understood yeah. because I've been a journalist. Mm-hmm. I dealt with customer service because that's a passion of mine. Yeah. And I was lucky enough to have teamed up with somebody who had a great experience and actually an existing business distributing, selling Sourcing, running the operations start, side. Sure. And I, I always say to people who are going into business that often I think it's really helpful to have a partner like that because no single person, in my experience, has both skill sets. Yeah. And so what made us so strong as a partnership was the fact that we each had our own areas of expertise, but they were complementary. Sure. And because we were married, actually... We had this sort of implicit trust in each other as well. And I could kind of, I can still see inside his head and vice versa.
0: (laughs) So you're still married then?
1: We're still married, happily married, yeah.
0: Yeah. um, Do you think it's easy or viable or what advice have you got for someone who might be going into business with family members or loved ones?
1: So I think you have got the advantage of that trust and you know that person very well. So there are no nasty surprises, Mm -hmm. hopefully. (laughs) <laughs> but I think you've got to set some boundaries because business very often mm. just naturally invades every moment of your spare time. Yeah. And I always say to people, if you want to shut the door on what you do at six o'clock at night, don't become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because you're going to take it home with you. Right. But I used to set some boundaries by we would go for a walk every night after work, around Notting Hill, up and downhill, etc. Yeah. And uh, we would kind of spend an hour. Downloading the day, yeah. talking about new products, talking about the staff is brainstorming, et cetera, but when we got home, we weren't allowed to talk about mm. it again till next day
0: mm. I am um, my um fiance worked with me for five years, and yeah we we just it'd be eight, nine, ten o'clock at night, I'd be trying to unwind she'd be in the ear about business then when it what, she wasn't in my ear, I was in her ear yeah. and, you've just yeah. got
1: to be really strict about it yeah. basically set and rules. same with holidays, yeah, you know. I'm not going to talk about it on holiday. Yeah. No matter how tempting it is.
0: Turn these off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so uh, could you give us like maybe a five-minute – it's a bit of a challenge, but I know you're good at these interviews – like a five-minute journey of Green and Blacks from when you started it to when you exited it?
1: So I never really expected it, to be honest, to be much more than something that got the health food trade excited. Craig Mm -hmm. had a great reputation as an innovator in the health food trade – We got a fantastically lucky break very early on with, I got a telephone call on my desk and it was a buyer from Sainsbury's who invited me to submit Green and Blacks for the next range review. So I went home that night and I said to Craig, hey, Sainsbury's called up today and they want us to submit it for a range review. And he said, no, it doesn't happen like that. You know, you go knocking on their door for years and years and years and then eventually you know you, you get a foot in, but in fact, one of the director's wives had had it at a dinner party and basically said to her husband, I think you should have this in Sainsbury's. And so that was our really lucky break.
0: And just before we finish this, because th- before it goes out of my head, what role do you think luck plays in business? Do you make well, your own, I or is it I think
1: that there are certain opportunities that come along, but I think that. I love that phrase, the harder I work, the luckier mm. I get.
0: Yeah, I think Gary Player said it about golf. Yeah, 12. exactly. Yeah.
1: So we were in the supermarkets at that point. Everybody really wanted to be Sainsbury's. They were the number one supermarket yeah. back in the early 90s. So we grew with them, but also all the other major supermarkets. We continued to grow very, very fast, which is challenging in itself because you know, you get to a point where all your money is Tied up in stock, and you can't afford product development. You can't afford advertising. You can't afford really to drive the business forward the way you'd want to. And so, in the year 2000, we took in investment from a group, a private equity group, right. who were going to bring talent to the to the company as well as just putting some money in and giving us, you know, some money and some shares so that we could sleep at night after nine roller coaster years. Yeah. And then in 2005, it was sold to Cadbury's. Right. And then you allowed 2000... to disclose how much you no, sold it for? absolutely not. In no. the contract, can't tell you. Of course, still. <laughs> and then in 2011, Cadbury's was acquired by Kraft. Yeah. So we've gone from this little tiny bedroom brand Lovely. to something that is truly global.
0: Yeah. And uh, looking back, would you do anything differently or what advice would you give to people?
1: I would be much more strategic about exports. Right. Okay. A huge amount of my time was taken up managing our export Mm -hmm. accounts partly because actually we became very friendly with many of our export customers you know we would meet them at international trade fairs and almost become friends and and we had these this incredible network of people who were like international champions of our brand who truly truly believed in it but we were very unstrategic about it Mm -hmm. and so we and i see this all the time with with young companies where they're flattered into selling half a pallet to slovenia or you know sending it 10 cases of something to finland yeah. and of course every single company every single country has its own import duties import regulations distribution nightmares et cetera. And so you spend a huge amount of time on all this little detail for not very much reward so at all. So
0: you're saying that you spread yourself a bit thin. You
1: spread yourself yeah. really thin, and I, I people do it because they want to be in all those yeah. different countries I suppose because it's nice they to feel say, it, isn't it makes yeah. them global. Yeah. But in reality, it's a lot less work generally mm. to send two containers of something to America or New Zealand or, or Australia, which we were doing. Yeah. Um, and what we really should have done was focus on those those very successful big markets Mm -hmm. and in fact when the private equity guys came in in 2000 they took a red pen to our export book which was very disappointing for some of our overseas distributors but i think looking back it was exactly the right thing to do because you can't you can't be everything to everybody
0: yeah so i've always had this real interest in the private equity world and we built our business my kitchen table it's a sort of £15 million nearly business now. And um, it's probably at the stage now where, you know, you could talk about selling or um, do you bring in money? And um, I've always been of the view that I don't want to be around a boardroom with a load of people telling me how to run my business who don't know how to run my business. But that might be an insular thing for me. So um, can you tell us some of the upsides and downsides of bringing in equity?
1: Well, for us, you see, when you're having to carry a massive amount of stock Mm. and you're doubling every year... It's very, very stifling yeah. because literally every penny that you have is is tied up in stock. So you what you're grow, doing yeah. is much more to do with sort of intellectual property yeah. and 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 you know creation and ideas. Yeah. But when you've got something physically that you're having to buy before you've sold it right, yeah. and finance that growth. Mm. It's very, very hard to go from that point where you're 2.5 million suddenly overnight the next year if you're still growing at 100% to be 5 million. And that's when a lot of companies break. And we were very frustrated by the fact that we just couldn't afford the kind of talent in particular that we knew we needed. We knew we needed a much better marketing director than me. Yeah. We knew we needed somebody who really could you know, go gangbusters on, on product development, etc. And so we couldn't afford those people. I mean, I didn't get paid for the entire time we owned Green and Blacks. Wow. Not one penny because every penny was tied up in stock.
0: Yeah. So would you go back then? Or would you start again and do a big stockholding business, or would you? Cause you speak I have My you? new
1: business, which is something called the Perfume Society, which is something else entirely. But all my businesses have been to do with the senses, interestingly. Mm-hmm. I've had a bakery and I've had a well-being centre, and now I've got something which it, basically our, our real aim is to help people improve their sense of smell. Mm-hmm. But I'm very, very adamant about the fact that I do not want to carry a lot of stock with this business it's not just risky it's just like it's just like having your cash under the mattress Mm. it's not doing anything for you it's just sitting there basically Mm. taking up a lot more space than cash under the mattress actually sure yeah yeah
0: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. and probably depreciating just as much Yeah. yeah yeah so okay then So let's go back to the private equity question then, because I still really want to – it's great having someone here who's experienced that. So some upsides and downsides of it. Upsides then, growth, get new stock, get talent. Were there any downsides of raising money? Well, for a
1: control freak – like me. You know, <laughs> it's quite hard to give up control. Craig's yeah. much more of a kind of Henry Kissinger figure, very diplomatic, right. able to deal with it, et yeah. I'm a little more fiery and mm-hmm. sort of speak before I think sometimes. Yeah. That's just who I am. Yeah. And so, so, any boardroom battles? Yeah, there were a couple of yeah. boardroom battles. And, you know, I <laughs> found myself crying myself to sleep a couple of times and sort of in the wee small hours. And then eventually Craig leant over at about two o'clock in the morning and said, honey... You can either have the control or the money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that kind of got yeah. things a bit back in proportion.
0: And do you think uh, that taught you to let go a bit more then? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah absolutely, mm. yes.
0: Okay, so what advice would you give to someone starting up on their kitchen table with not a lot of money but a really exciting dream, maybe a bit like you did yep. in 91?
1: I think what I would say to them is that whatever their plan is the law of the universe seems to be it's going to cost you twice as much and take twice as long to get to where you think yeah. you're going to be. So, yeah. you know, your plan for year one will probably take you two years to get there mm-hmm. and cost you twice as much as you think. Yeah. That seems to be the basic rule yeah. of thumb.
0: Yeah, I'm in property, so refurbs, twice as long, twice as much. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know,
1: but doesn't yeah. no matter what you're doing, yeah. that's the universe. Yeah. So I would also say to them that I think, you know, learning from Craig and I having these complementary skills yeah. and being there to support each other. I think it's a very lonely furrow to plough sometimes mm-hmm. yeah. if you're just a sole entrepreneur, mm. because actually it is very hard to do the outward facing stuff and still make sure all the invoices are going out yeah. and still deal with the nuts and bolts, etc. Mm. And you end up being really stretched and yeah. also not having that emotional support. Mm. You know, the thing about Craig and I is that if one of us was down for some reason, the other one could yeah. bring us up. And I, I have friends who are Sole traders and, and sort of independent entrepreneurs, and I have to be that kind of person for them mm. sometimes when they're having a really tough time because they haven't got a business partner or sure. you know a, a fellow directors to kind of just just go. It's going to be okay. Mm. You know, have a cup of tea. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And that emotional support, I think, is really really important. Otherwise. You do get knockbacks all the time in business as well as, you know, I mean, I, with my new business, I feel like I'm on the most, the world's biggest roller coaster Mm. and the highs are enormous and the kind of, you know, your website goes down and then suddenly Mm. you're underwater, you know.
0: Yeah, Yeah. I have a business partner and uh I... You know, were you interviewing me, I'd say exactly the same thing. I totally believe in having people with complementary skill sets. I think a lot of people, when they start a business, they they go into business with people they like, and they get excited because they like them, but they end up being the same.
1: Exactly. It's a nightmare if you both want to do the same bits. Mm. If you both want to do the creative bits, who's going to send out the invoice? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then you're both going to get each other's way on the thing you were good at and and make a mess of it. Yeah. So. Something um, I like, kind
1: of think there should be a dating agency for work. Yes. People who want to go into business together. Yeah. Because I do find that. Yeah, that, you, should of, that. you should trademark
0: that. Maybe you tell
1: everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that I, I give away ideas all the time now. It's like I can't do them all myself. So <laughs> um, the you've got people who generally have great management skills or. or accounting skills or yeah. whatever literally don't have an idea in their heads mm. and then you've got people who have 17 ideas a day like me and and you know there should be some kind of tinder to sure. put them together
0: yeah, yeah. yeah I, think you're, I think you're onto something there <laughs> <laughs> okay so mentors yes now um, I'm a big fan of having mentors yeah. you can either try and reinvent the wheel and go through all the mistakes or find someone who's been there and done it yeah. and save you the time what's your stance on that
1: but I was lucky enough to be mentored by Anita Roddick wow Yeah. I'd gotten to know Anita through my writing. Okay. And we'd become friends and we'd been to Mexico together and Romania. And when I started Green and Blacks, she was just fantastically supportive. She loved the idea that I was doing something that, you know, a a business that had values. Absolutely could not wish for a better mentor. Yeah. And I adored her. And, you know, just those moments where you were having a bad time and she Mm -hmm. just kept your passion blazing or she just encouraged you. And she also signed me up for a network of, uh, at the time, of social entrepreneurs Mm -hmm. because actually social enterprise was really in its infancy then people who were trying to do good through doing business at the beginning of the 90s called social venture network and she would go to those weekends or or conferences etc and I would go and she introduced me to all sorts of people that made me feel like I wasn't just this little lone salmon swimming Mm -hmm. upstream I was part of a shoal and we were all trying to move in the same direction so I got a huge amount of that out of that relationship and I've always tried in return to, you know, mentor other people, but I'm quite picky. I mean, I may have three or four young women, and they're always women, yeah. actually, because I feel I have more to offer. Right. I, I understand their journey better. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I talent sport. I really have got to feel that, actually, it, it's like, you know, betting on a, a horse at the races or something, that mm. actually that one's, that one's the odds-on favourite to, mm. to do well, because I really feel that what I can do is just really help them motor Sure. and my experience has to be really very directly relevant. So Anita's was, you know, Anita's was a, it was a a business making things that were rapid, you know, fast moving consumer goods, but, but a business that had a heart. Mm. And so, you know, I've tried to identify Mm. people who have similar goals and, you know, some of them have done fantastically well. Sure.
0: So it sounds like you're pretty clear that you do what you know. And when you help people, you help people, do what you're doing that you know you can do
1: absolutely i mean i had somebody come up to me at an event i was speaking at in the city the other day and she works in finance and i said you know what i really my experience isn't really relevant to yours and Mm. and much as i would enjoy having a cup of coffee with you i don't really feel Mm. that that is the best use of my time nor do i feel that i'm the most helpful person for you because you need somebody who really understands your world yeah and I don't really.
0: So when you managed to get a, mentored by Anita, was it something, were you like strategically in your head going, I need a mentor? No. Or just, no just... <laughs> she
1: just sort of stepped into that role. Yeah. I didn't even realise that, that at the time, really, that that's what she was doing yeah. until, until a while later. You sure.
0: Know. And um, as you said, she helped you kind of motor along and was there to support. Was it also her knowledge of your, your industry? Was, was she also valuable in that department? Or was she just a sounding board?
1: Um, I think the the, the values driven side of the business, so the sort of trying to do good through doing business, was very much she understood that. Mm. But mostly it was just black humour, having a laugh yeah. about whatever mm. catastrophe had just yeah. befallen, because it does in yeah. business all the time. Yeah. And I think a sense of humour and and an ability when you know when gloom is staring in you, you in the face, just to kind of turn it around and just go. Sure. You know, you've got to have a laugh, really. Yeah. She was great at that. Yeah.
0: She was great at that. Yeah, that, that, that's, an, that's an amazing story. I mean, that's just an amazing mentor. Something that you've been saying a lot just in the 20 minutes gone already is so the do good and the values and the passion through business. Yeah. That seems to be a recurrent theme. So can you talk about that? Is that... Is that the backbone of everything you do? Do you think that's important?
1: Yeah, I do think it's important. And people sometimes say, where did it come from? And I always go, well, I watched Blue Peter when I was a kid. You know, I honestly think it kind of goes back to that, this idea that you should actually try to give something back in this world. And it's not at the expense of making a profit. Mm -hmm. But um, I think if you can change the world through business, and I see business wanting to do this more and more and more, and being answerable to people who want to, business to behave ethically and and you know do some good as well as making money then that's what you should do so it's certainly for me an important part of everything i've done Mm -hmm. is is you know organic ethical fair trade in some way trying to enrich the the world and, Mm. and people's lives and not only to about the bottom line
0: sure and how, is it, how important... But or, the bottom line is really
1: important. I mean, I always say to people, they come to me with a business plan and they say, right, so we're going to give 10% of the profits to this charity or that charity or whatever. And I go, first,
0: make some, make some yeah. profits,
1: but also don't paint yourself into that corner. I mean, sometimes they come and they say, we're going to give 10% of turnover. Yeah. And I go, Which might you be have margin. no idea yeah. until you're up and running yeah. whether that's really going to be your profit margin, yeah. you know, because... Yeah. As I say, all all sorts of unexpected Mm. costs come in that you perhaps hadn't hadn't Mm. anticipated. So I think by all means have values, but don't put a price on Mm -hmm. what you're going to give away. And I do see people trying to do that because they want to build those values in at the beginning. And that's all well and good. But it's risky if you you write it into your business plan from the word go.
0: Right. So you're basically saying balance, doing good and having a great vision to change the world and still focusing on the bottom line.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the bigger a business is, the bigger the difference that it can make. Mm. And that's why when people say to me, you know, how do I feel about my company belonging to to Mondelez, which is a multinational? Well, that's great. Who am I to say that, you know, more and more and more cocoa farmers shouldn't be helped by by the sale of green and blacks to to customers? You know, it's not, that's not in my gift. I can't, it would be wrong of me to say, no, I want to keep it small and I wanted to keep it private and, and not, Enhance those farmers' lives.
0: Sure, I mean, just because it's smaller doesn't mean it's um, helping more people, does it? I know Coca-Cola, for example, they're some of the biggest employers in the third yeah. world. And, yeah. Mm. So your daily routine, I'm sure everyone watching and listening who's a passionate entrepreneur is probably living this chaotic lifestyle and, I don't know, getting up <laughs> early and staying late and burning the midnight oil. Yeah. How do you roll on the daily so routine? So
1: I have a very unvarying regime in the morning, which is that like I wake up early. Mm-hmm. I never wake. Never really sleep beyond about half past six. Yeah. I make a pot of tea.
0: Can I just jump in here because we have worldwide listeners and audience. Uh, for those of you that aren't English, tea is everything. Yeah. Everything. I have a, <laughs> my own
1: bespoke blend made by my best friend who is a tea entrepreneur who runs something called the, the Rare Tea Company, right. who is it's kind of the green and blacks of the, the tea world. So, yeah. So I make that. I then do 15 minutes of headspace meditation. Wow. Without okay. which my day can rapidly go to pieces. About 18 months ago, I found myself in my new business running around like a headless chicken, Mm -hmm. and I thought I've really got to do something about this, and Headspace really kind of turned it around for Mm -hmm. me. So, and then I, a lot depends, I might be going off to speak somewhere, or I might be going to the Perfume Society office, or I might be writing at my desk at home, it's very, very varied, and so I, I I use something called Wonderlist, which is a Wonderlist, I think it is, <laughs> which is an app that's on my phone, but it's also on my desktop, it's on my laptop, it's on my iPad, yeah. and it all syncs in real time. So mm. I never kind of I never forget to do things because they're on my Wonderlist, and I can keep track of mm-hmm. different projects even though I might be in different places, etc. Yeah. And I use Dropbox and Google Docs yeah. and and Depulse, and so so. Everything is virtual, so basically I can put something down and pick it up somewhere else, right. which is important for me because mm. I'm, I'm not just based in one space. Sure.
0: It's interesting you say this because I found something on Entrepreneur Magazine today, and uh, it's a study of the wealthiest people in history and the rich list and the most successful people, and apparently 81% of the wealthy and successful maintain a to-do list, okay. which you've just said, and 9% <laughs> of the poor do. Right. Interesting. 44% of the wealthiest people in the world get up three hours before they go to work. Yeah. So between five and a half, six, which yep. you do. They love to read. Do you like to read? I love to read. It's yeah, so 86% and um, 88% read more than 30 minutes a day. Would you say 30 yes, minutes a day? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Is, do you read? Um...
1: I read in, I mean, I, I, in bed in the morning, I'm reading magazines and newspapers yeah. and I read a book last thing at night, which helps me sleep. Yeah. And I really now have a rule that, Even when I still have things to do, I leave my desk at 9 o'clock at Mm -hmm. night, I turn my computer off, and then I switch my phone to airplane mode because I am incredibly conscious of the fact that staring at a screen keeps me awake when I get into bed. And as long as I sleep well, Mm. I can function beautifully the next day. But, for example, I broke that rule on Monday night and couldn't get to sleep till 2 o'clock in the morning was next to useless next day. Mm. So any time that I might have kind of used getting ahead on Monday night was yeah. just wasted yeah. because on Tuesday I was basically barely able to string a sentence mm. together.
0: Mm. And do you read uh, books on business? And, I do. Yeah, yeah, as yeah as well I do. As fiction. Yes, of yeah. course.
1: There's always. At least one, definitely one business book and one piece of fiction on the go at any one time.
0: And uh, is there any uh, good book you could recommend on business and entrepreneurship? Well, my
1: favourite book is actually, I give it to women uh, starting out, I kind of bulk buy it on Amazon. Mm. And it was by Martha Stewart, who set up that massive sort of multimedia operation Mm. in America. You have to slightly leave aside the fact she went to jail for insider trading, but she did write a really good business book called The Martha Rules. And it's just a very... It's kind of down-to-earth, bite-sized, mm. sensible, spot-on guide mm. for a woman setting up business mm. on her own.
0: Two um, books I've read, because I've got really interested in w- women entrepreneurs as well. I run a training business, and I, I think the world needs a lot more inspirational women yep. speakers, for example, which is why we've got you at the... Women building wealth event. I read. Have you read Ariana Huffington's Thrive? I give
1: Thrive to lots of yeah, people
0: as well. Because she, yeah. she talks a lot about the work life balance yes, and and yeah. so
1: on. You know, it's it's it is really really important. I mm. think.
0: And then Lean In by Cheryl yes, Sandberg. Yes, Lean In.
1: Absolutely. So, Absolutely. If you're listening so, yes, and you're they're into all yeah. they're all good. They're all good. And, you know, Richard Branson's business books mm. are fantastic as well.
0: Yeah. You know. Great. So I've got two quick questions here because I know you've got to go and yep. scope go the room to do your to talk. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they're fairly brief questions. One is, what advice would you give your 20-year younger
1: self? I'm often asked that question, and I think it's I don't a great know what question. Advice I would give her, but I might give her a bit of reassurance that actually it was all going to be okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, she can do it. <laughs> she can do it yeah. because
1: I left school when I was 16, and I was not expected to amount to anything in this world. And right. so I was still just starting to find my feet mm-hmm. at 19, 20, mm-hmm. and my expectations were still not very high at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't. I certainly didn't imagine. I'd be a magazine editor by the age of 23. Sure. So it would have been, I think it would have helped my confidence at that stage if somebody had said, it's all going to be okay, mm. you know. Mm. And actually, at the end of the day, for most of us, it is okay. Yeah. You know, it's, mm. it's I, when, I, when I look back at all the amount of time all um, colleagues and friends and I all spent angsting about things in our early 20s, mm. actually mostly worked out fine yeah. you know yeah. um, that's just part of growing up I think mm. Mm. Um, so so I think that's not necessarily I don't think I'd have done anything differently really mm. but it would have been nice to have a bit of hand holding and, and just be told not to worry so much
0: sure and do you think that links back then to maybe having mentors and good people yeah, around you
1: totally I was very very lucky with, with uh, certainly in magazines with the people who took me under their wing
0: sure okay great and then the final question I want to say uh, just before that thank you it's been great This uh, podcast and video is called, the series is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? If you could explain what being a disruptive entrepreneur means.
1: I think most entrepreneurs are disruptive in that we're essentially unemployable. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, and actually, I think that big business has a lot to learn from entrepreneurs and how we think and the risks we're prepared to take mm-hmm. and the fact that we're not afraid of our own shadow, sure. which a lot of people who work in a big corporation are yeah. terrified to make a decision, put their head above the parapet, etc. Mm-hmm. And so the whole rise in entrepreneurialism, which is trying to yes. get big corporations to, to think more like people like us, I think is, is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So so really, it's just, it's just that daring, I think, the mm. um, not willing to take the status quo, that curiosity, just wanting to find out, you know, what happens if I do this?
0: Mm. Mm. You know? Yeah, and what a great attitude. And
1: not yeah. be afraid of falling flat on your face.
0: Which you do on a daily basis Which when you're an do
1: On a, a daily basis, yeah. you know?
0: <laughs> great. So, uh, finally, I'd uh, love if people want to hear you speak. Is, is there any way we can follow you? Do you do, you do um, social? Can we I do you?
1: do social, slightly reluctantly, at Jojo Sams. Okay. Don't ask.
0: And um, is that for Twitter?
1: That's for Twitter. Yeah. And um, at Jo Fairley on Instagram.
0: Right, great. Um,
1: Instagram I love. Yeah. Completely love Instagram. Twitter's a kind of necessary evil, but I don't think... I'm not sure Twitter's going to be around in 10 years' time. Mm. I think it has a vicious side. And actually, people used to say nobody went to their grave wishing they'd spent more time in the office. Mm. I actually think the modern version of that is nobody's going to go to their grave wishing they'd spent more time on Twitter.
0: (laughs) Well, time will tell with that. I think... uh, well, just one thing to just quickly because we have got two minutes is obviously we don't own these platforms so you know you have your profile and lots of your fans and followers on there and i might have mine in the big celebrities because we don't own the customers do we whereas if we have on email for example we own the yeah. data so maybe that's something to think about I,
1: th- I think it's more that actually people are going to realize they've got better things to do than mm. with their life than you know bitch about who just sang badly on the voice <laughs>
0: Right, Joe, once again, I want to say a big thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Disruptive Entrepreneur podcast. Uh, Make sure you're following me on Twitter as well, which is Rob Progressive. Instagram is Rob Progressive and Facebook is Rob More Progressive. And um, Tom, my head of design is showing me the screens all over the place. Can you show me that again so I know what to say? Social links and reviews. Okay, so yeah, please review the podcast. That'd be great. And uh, also, if you do share the disruptive entrepreneur on any of your social pages, I'll give you a signed copy of Life Leverage, uh, the book that I've just signed with Hachette.
1: So thank you very much, and once again, thank you. Thank you.